Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. My name is Dan Martin, special effects artist and podcaster, and I am joined as ever by my lovely co-host... Sam Ashurst, and I'm a writer, I'm a director, I'm a producer, I'm an editor, I'm a cinematographer, and I'm now a composer. Uh, I made a short film yesterday and I did the music for it this time um, to uh, continue in my apparent mission to be a one-man filmmaking <laughs> thing <laughs> yeah. are you allowed to pictures your short uh yeah is it a secret no not really so basically what i did was there was a kind of an event at hex last night and it was me and a couple of other directors kind of being presented to um an audience of people and talking about the projects that we're working on um of which church of wild animals is mine and we were sort of asked to bring clips of stuff and frankenstein's creature is actually quite hard to clip from and yep. uh, a little more flesh i can't really show yet because that's going to have the world premiere at starburst in march um and so i thought well part of what I like doing and like talking about is the kind of community element of filmmaking and how you know people should just go out there and do it so I basically challenged myself to shoot and edit and export and screen a whole short film in a day it was very fun and um, people seem to really like the short so I think I'll probably put it online at some point I've never done that before Um, but I think with this one Uh, I would kind of like to share it. So it's called The Heart is for Blood, and it's a spooky ghost story that I put together in a very short space of time. But um, I'm quite proud of it. I'll send it to you later, Dan, so you can have a look. Yeah, I'd like uh, to see it. Yeah, that sounds awesome. But yes, sorry, I've just been talking for ages. I'm quite frazzled. You know what it's like, Dan, when you've been filming all day. Absolutely. It does make you a a tiny bit frazzled. It's a very, very unique form of... um, physical exercise and mental exhaustion <laughs> uh so to do all of that in one day was quite intense so that was yesterday and so today i am a tiny bit frazzled but obviously very happy and proud to, to have achieved it type thing um and i'm sure you're feeling very happy and proud at the moment dan all the reviews for possessor are pouring in yes and they are pretty yes. incredible aren't they yeah, it's been very, uh, very exciting, and it's nice to to glean from what people are saying that Brandon uh, mentioned the physical nature of all of the effects in the Q and A as well. So he's he's always been a, a very nice and magnanimous chap, and it's nice to hear that that continues. Uh, yeah, it's it's super super exciting. Uh, it was always going to be divisive, and I have seen some people who don't get it. That is how I refer to people that don't like it. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, la- the, the people that like it really fucking like it, and that's very very exciting. That's great. Yeah. I- I, you know, I mean, I've been excited about it since Cannes last year when um, I saw little bits and pieces of... uh, I could talk about the Flesh Trench now, can't I? I won't say what I saw, but it's out there. The concept of the Flesh Trench is out there, isn't it? The vagaries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. People people have seen it in action. There's actually very little Flesh Trench in the film, considering what an important part of our lives it was. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I was very, very lucky to be shown some footage of that um, on an iPhone in a pizza restaurant i was about to eat a pepperoni pizza which was an interesting experience because uh, it is fairly gruesome footage so i honestly cannot wait to see the the final film and i'm just so happy for you that not only is it being re- well received but people are kind of talking about you specifically in their reviews and stuff and it's so deserved yeah, that's very nice yeah so deserved so uh 
a, a good a good weekend all round uh, for Sam and Dan. Yeah, but so. we're not here to talk about our weekends. We're here to talk about The Hills Have Eyes, the third film by director Wes Craven, one of my favourite directors. Uh, but I have to say, this is not one of my favourite films. Dan, how do you feel about The Hills Have Eyes? Uh, so I was a little bit dubious about going into this one because I knew that it wasn't necessarily your favourite Craven and it's not my favourite Craven either and I feel that these podcasts work better when at least one of us loves the film. Yeah. <laughs> um, but actually revisiting it, I found a lot more to like than I sort of remembered and I realised that I hadn't seen it since pre-2006. Uh, I, don't think, I don't think I'd re-watched it since uh, the, the remake came out and I, I really liked the remake. Yeah, the remake. Alexander Arger version yeah and so i then immediately watched the remake again over this weekend and that has faded a little bit for me so i think that the the scales have tipped back to to where's craven for this whereas you know if you asked me a couple of weeks ago i would have said that i think that the the remake was probably better um it's a really really well plotted film and yeah it's got some some slow bits in it but it's um like well in all fairness it's got some slightly boring bits in it but um, but I think that actually what it's doing is very clever, and it benefits from a second, third watch. I mean, you know, I'd seen it a couple of times before, not a huge number of times. Um, but he does a lot of very good ground laying, and I think that the pit that he falls into occasionally is that sometimes the cleverness of that work isn't recognisable on your first pass through the narrative because you don't know that that stuff's being set up. And a lot of that was sort of mixed, missed out by Aja, and I think to the film's detriment, because in some ways it's a shot-for-shot remake, but in others it misses out just little, you know, possibly insignificant feeling, they feel like they could be insignificant things, but they're so important to the world. Um, yeah, it's really fucking good. It's really good. Yeah, so that's it. So when I say it's not my favourite um, Wes Craven, that doesn't necessarily mean that I think it's a terrible film. I just think yeah, of course. I think it's an okay film. And not every episode of this podcast can be us raving about, you know, how brilliant the films are because, you know, A, Arrow would have to basically just release everything that we suggest to them and they're never going to do that, sadly. <laughs> um, uh, and B, I think it, it doesn't really make it an interesting listen for uh, our precious Arrowheads. So uh, this one is just kind of average for me but i agree with you that it's still an interesting film um and i agree that it's more interesting than the the remake which like you i did really like um i like it less since uh me and my girlfriend my girlfriend at the time watched it uh, on dvd and we fell asleep with it on the dvd menu and basically it's kind of like this quite aggressive industrial noise and so that was burning into my subconscious for eight hours and so i think maybe uh that has caused (laughs) negative associations uh but yeah um it's fine and i actually interviewed alexander arja about the movie years and years ago when i was at dvd review and he was a really interesting guy so um very very clever guy uh, yeah, he is. Yeah, so you know, uh, you work, did you work with Alexander Archer? Yeah, Alex was on um, was on other side of the door out in India, of so course, I met him yeah. in London, and then we were in India together um, for that that picture. Um, yeah, he's really nice. We went for dinner a couple of times. He's very very smart, very knowledgeable. Yeah, and like yeah, just super 
like passionate about cinema, which is obviously always very attractive to me. I think that's a, a very good characteristic for a person. Well, it's how <laughs> it's how we fell in love, wasn't it, Dan? Absolutely. Um, but yeah, uh, Hills of Eyes, kind of interesting in that Wes Craven didn't necessarily want to do it. He wanted to sort of move away from kind of the, the bleak um, horror stuff. But there was money there, and so he kind of, you know, he, he took the money to survive type thing. And that's kind of interesting because obviously the film is about uh, surviving at all costs, um, you know, with both families um, being kind of like a, a, a dark mirror of each other. Yeah, absolutely. I think the one of the things that works so solidly about it is that the often the best narratives have one mutually exclusive goal for the antagonist and the protagonist Mm. and this does a very good version of that where they are both desperate to survive but only one of them can achieve that because it has to be at the cost has to be at the cost of the other yeah i liked it's also a lot of it's about um like the like protection protection roles within a family community a family group yeah and whose responsibility it is, and the there's the bit where Berryman is pushed away from the daughter in the in the in the, in the trailer, mm. and uh, and he said he says no, you're not a man yet, or you know you yeah. know when it's your you know whatever, and so there's obviously this sort of like hierarchy of you know perceived adult status, and again the 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 father as the protector of the daughter having to hand over like you know he's he's. There's a little bit, not as much as in the remake, but there's a there's a bit of little bit of friction between him and the the son-in-law, um, who's you know who's the new man in his precious daughter's life. Um, so he's you know she's got a new protector who will end up obviously being the second most protecty person in the film after uh, the beast, the yeah. dog, <laughs> who's the real hero. Yeah, totally. You see, this is why you like it now as a, as a dog owner. You now understand that um, yeah, true heroism comes on four yeah, legs. Yeah, of course. I had to shield Moose and Pig from the from the real dead dog. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Dan, <laughs> Dan, 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 you can never complain about that again after working on Lords of Chaos. But that's another story. I, you know what? I did. A, I had a, a film uh, anecdote time. I had a, <laughs> had a film approach me. I may have mentioned this before on the podcast, actually. So if I have, stop me, Sam. But absolute yonks ago, I was approached for a film that uh, would need uh, an autopsy to be done on a German Shepherd on camera. And so I designed all of that and everything else, and we were sort of going towards the um, getting closer and closer to the shoot, and then the producer the director i don't remember which said oh well we've been given we've been taking like sort of advice from this veterinary school who've been like telling us how things are done and what we should know when we come to film it and whatever and they said well we've got loads of dogs in the freezer that the trainee vets have to like do their training like surgeries on why don't you just use one of them and i was you know suitably horrified and they said so so we were thinking, could you redo the quote to do like just all the other stuff? Because oh obviously, you know, a full a full size skinnable, like partially skinnable, disembowelable German Shepherd puppet is not cheap. <laughs> oh my god! Wow. Um, and I said, oh, uh, I know, I'm, I'm not going to do this film. Thank you. <laughs> I away. But but the the point of the anecdote really is that in the prep for that, before they. Um, got to uh 
telling me that they were going to use a real fucking dead dog. Incidentally, I don't think the short film ever happened. I got in contact with, and I'm ashamed to say I've forgotten his name, there's an amazing European film called Taxidermia. Mm-hmm. And there's loads of really beautiful internal camera shots, like moving through all of the sort of membranes and viscera inside the body. And it's exceptionally good. Uh, and I managed to get in contact with a special effects artist. And I said, look, can I ask your advice on this? Because you, as far as I'm concerned, this is the standout example of that work. It's just incredible. Like, he'd done other stuff. There's a fat suit in it, and there's loads of vomit rigs. and Like, it's, you know, it's quite an effects-heavy film. But this stuff was the real like the most impressive bit and he was like yeah they fucking put all that in in the edit like that's real oh my god i did i wasn't there for that like we'd shot the film yeah and then in edit they decided they needed this extra footage and instead of calling me they just like got a load of guts from an abattoir or something and, and shoved a camera through it that's why it looks so good because it's real wow but yeah he was he was livid as as i was you know somewhat perturbed about the uh the laws of chaos cat yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you, you obviously had no control over that, but um, and obviously we're not. I'm not criticizing the film itself because uh, I absolutely love the film, but you know, there is something a little bit unnerving. Um, yeah, you know, on the audio comment, uh, not on the audio comment, Sorry, when we, when Jen and I were watching it, the uh, the seventy seven one, Jen said, "Do you think that's a real dog?" And I was like, "Oh no, surely it can't be." It was. I mean, they shot it in America. You don't use dead dogs in America. Like you know, there, there are some dead animals around that time in American cinema, not as much as, like, Italy. But I was saying, I can't can't think of a single film where I've seen a dead dog on, like, a real dead dog on screen. Mm. Except Bardi, the Turkish E.T. remake. They shoot a dog in that. That was fucking horrible. Yeah. But, um... But uh, but no, it's a real dead dog. <laughs> he got out of the freezer. I have a question for you. So, um, well, actually, um, before we get on to oh, the, yeah, the question segment of this, uh, which I always <laughs> appreciate and enjoy. Oh no, no, um, it's just I just need your input in something. Okay, well, uh, but just on the subject of frozen animals, this film has another frozen animal, uh, and it's quite amusing. People might not be aware of this, but uh, the snake that uh, is used. Uh, spoilers. Everyone, spoilers. Uh, <laughs> the snake that appears uh, in the kind of final moments of the film, that was uh, a real snake that hadn't had its poison extracted. Um, but the handler was like, oh, no, it's fine. Um, what you do is you freeze the snake and then um, it kind of melts a bit and then it's gr- too groggy to do anything and, you know, it, you can work with it. That, that's how we do things. And everyone was like, oh, okay, that sounds legit. But unfortunately, uh, film productions being what they are, they didn't get to the snake bit until the end of the day, by which time the snake had been fully melted in the very hot sun of the desert. And, uh, yeah, the actors had to work in an environment that... that very much endangered their lives. Jesus Christ. Yeah, and, and in fact, they opened the basket to get the snake and it shot out. <laughs> They're expecting this kind of dozy, groggy thing and uh, it moved at great speed and they still had to work with it. So, um, Is, Isn't that how they did the Hornet in the car in Phenomena as well? Yeah. The freezer until it went to sleep. Yeah. And then they, and then they put it on a string. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yeah, Puppeted it around, yeah. Yeah, uh, utterly bizarre. But um, Cold animals. What is your question? Oh, so my question was, uh, uh, Sam knows this already, but for the benefit of the audience, I uh, wasn't able to get my hands on a, on a copy of the Arrow disc. This is a first for us. Um, because Arrow have sold all of them. Uh, and they thought they had some in the office, but they, they didn't. Um, so I've watched the film, but I, I haven't seen any of the extras. But what I did do was I listened to the to Wes Craven's audio commentary on the Aja 
remake. Oh yeah, and he and he made a throwaway comment at one point about the baby in the '77 original being drugged to get the shots they needed. Does he mention that in any of the extras on the Arrow disc? I think they make. I, I think. Unless I've watched something else recently where someone jokes about drugging a baby, I think they make a joke about drugging the baby in the commentary. I'm, I'm pretty sure maybe the, it's do, maybe the documentary, it's a, but a long-standing joke and it didn't happen. But it sounds very much like they sedated the baby. <laughs> yeah, I, it, it, I'm sure that I'm sure they make a joke about it. But whether it's true or not, I mean, to be honest, from the sounds of of this film, it would not surprise me. You know, you've yeah. got a fully poisoned snake. <laughs> you've got dead Room dogs. Room temperature snakes. <laughs> and originally, obviously, I'm sure you know this already, but the original intention uh, for the original Hills of Eyes was to kill the baby. Um, but various yeah. people on the production in the cast and crew said that they would walk if that was to happen. Maybe they were worried that the baby was going to actually be killed in the context of all the other things that had been going on. <laughs> it does seem a bit of an extreme reaction to a plot point. Yeah, it really fucking does, especially if it was already in the script. Yeah. Like, you signed on to this shit. You're not being, like, it's not, not being sprung on you. Exactly. Um, but in, the, the overall production just sounds fucking nuts. Like, even the recce that they went on, they were told, don't go in the desert, it's too hot, you will die. And they're like, oh, we'll be fine. So we bought a couple of bottles of water <laughs> and a six-pack of Pepsi and went out into the desert. <laughs> Pepsi's not going to help you, Wes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, it is a, a really good disc, actually, for that stuff. Like, um, Yeah, the, there's the, a lot of extras on it. The documentary that was ported over um, from the Anchor Bay release, it's an hour long, and, um, yeah, it, everyone on it is likeable. And while the cast aren't being straight up honest and telling all the tales of what went on, you can kind of read between the lines of some of the things that they're saying, such as uh, one of the actors says that the film is a testament to how hard people have to work to be in the business. Um, Yeah, I think they faced death several times to be in the business, so that's probably a fair statement. Oh my God, yeah. But yeah, should we uh, move on to recommendations based on the movie or are there other things that you'd like to talk about in relation to the original? Um, I, I like the fact that all of the guns in the story are brought in by the outsiders. Yeah. They make a point of the fact that the, the, the garage owner at the beginning says, I haven't got any shells. Mm-hmm. And he says a list of things, but one of them is ammo. Yeah. And obviously Berryman and a couple of the others are wearing necklaces made of phalanges and ammunition, like spent ammo rounds. Yeah. So uh, it's sort of, I mean, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what the sort of political leanings of the film are, but it does seem to be making us at least a gentle statement uh, in line with that uh, statistic that you're more likely to have a gun used on yourself if you have one in the house than you are to be able to successfully overpower uh, an intruder. Yeah, I, I, I did wonder if that was known, if that statistic was around then. Well, I feel like the politics of the original, they're a little bit muddy. Um, like, it's obviously, it's shortly after Vietnam, um, like after the yeah. US gave up on the war and... You know, you've got the planes flying overhead. You've got the joke about being on a submarine. And it really does feel like, certainly in the early stages, that sense of war is hanging in the air. 
but the kind of military elements kind of go away. It's it's like an unfinished thread for me. And in the remake, obviously, the kind of ideology is slightly different and it's a bit more... Um, it feels like it's leaning a little bit more right-wing, the remake. Well, um, it's interesting. I definitely got that sense this time. The first time I watched it, it felt like, with all the bombast and loudness, it felt like it was, you know, this comparatively young French horror director coming over to America and making a, a doing a remake of a of an American movie and using it as a sort of the Americans are the bad guys kind of piss take mm. like the fact that someone gets like stabbed they they stab the American flag yeah. into the head of yeah. the burnt father yeah, yeah. and then he uses it to kill someone else later is preposterous yeah. and surely that is like you know taking the piss out of the uh, the sort of Americana yeah, I think Aja did. It all. I think Aja did talk about um, the film being a, a European outsider's view of America. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. there probably are kind of satirical elements to it, but as ever with satire, you know, it's possible to read it kind of straight. Um, and some of the, the gun stuff is a little bit muddy in there, I think, uh, uh, in comparison to the kind yeah, of there's careful stuff there's in the a- original. Absolutely. Well, there's an extra gun in the Aja version because the shotgun that the guy in the gas station uses on himself ends up being in the in the mix yeah. as well. So th- they lose that element, and they also seem to lose the element. One of one of the things I liked so much uh, in the Craven version is that the gas, the petrol used to set fire to the father, is siphoned out of the out of the 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 trailer. Yeah. Or the car. So, like, really, they have brought every everything that kills them, almost. Like, you know, they've brought all this stuff with them. They're having everything that they brought with them turned against them. Yeah. No, absolutely. Which I really liked, and it's and it's it's missing. And it's only when the uh, <laughs> using the mother as bait in the in the original is such a such a fantastic moment. And I was very sad to see it missing from the remake. Uh, absolutely, how, that, that, how close it is. Surely, it is. that's one of the. I mean, maybe again, you know, uh, Craven used to be more of a kind of provocateur, and there's a real dark humour to that scene. And maybe with the tone of Arja's film, it was just a little bit too much. I can imagine that being really fucking tough. As as tough as everything else is in Arja's film, like that in that kind of tone would be a little bit weird maybe. But that mm. is actually one of my favourite scenes. And I, and, yeah, it's amazing. Uh, my favourite shot is the moment where... The axe moment, basically, when she runs towards... Um, can't remember the character's name, but I'm very frazzled and shattered. I directed and edited and exported and screened a whole short film yesterday. Uh, <laughs> uh, but the, the the shot of her running towards him with the axe is just beautiful. Um, that kind of puts me in mind most of... Because uh, the film's biggest influence, obviously, is Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And that is yeah. a shot that I feel could have been in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's just so good. It gives me goosebumps whenever I see it. Um but yeah, anything else? Or should we move on to recommendations based on this film? Yeah, we can move on to recommendations, I think. I like, yeah, 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 yeah. There's, I mean, you know, there's loads of nice stuff about religion and stuff in it. and But yeah, for the most... Oh, and, and they drink J&B, which is... Yeah, they do. <laughs> the, the cannibal family, of course, not the, uh, not the nice family. Yeah. Uh, or nice in quotation marks, I should say. Uh, well, I guess by 19, 1974, we were getting into the, like, this is... Is 1974 after Man from Deep River? Uh, this is 77, isn't it? 77, sorry, yeah, no, you're completely right. It's 1977 after... 
man from Deep River. I mean, it's statistically more likely than 74. Yeah, it? yeah. So it's pre-Cannibal Holocaust, but it's maybe same year as Green Inferno? Anyway, cannibals are very much an Italian thing uh, by this point in Silver. Oh, no, absolutely, and, 100%. Yeah, and J&B yeah, yeah. was very much an Italian thing. So the cannibals drink J&B. I think that's solid logic, solid film logic. Yeah, no, it's, I, if it is indeed a reference, I hope it is a reference, because, yeah, absolutely, Italians were dominating the cannibal game. I think, yeah, 72 for... Um, Deep River. Yeah, I think so. Anyway, yes, so do you have Italian cannibal movies as one of your recommendations, Dan? No, I don't. My first recommendation is The Cars That Ate Paris. Okay. Which is why I said 1974. Right, got it. (laughs) Because that's from 1974. (coughs) Uh, A couple of years earlier. Uh, Peter Weir picture. Obviously, Peter Weir would go on to do things like Picnic Hanging Rock and uh, Master and Commander. But yeah, I, I, when watching the remake... It suddenly occurred to me the, the sort of the parallels, uh, sort of disjointed parallels perhaps, but parallels between the the, bear, the base story of Hills Have Eyes. I keep on almost saying Last House on the Left of Hills Have Eyes and um, Cars at Paris. And Jen hadn't seen it, so it was uh, immediately pulled down. Uh, I did do a search to see if there's a, a, a Blu-ray around because I realised it was time to upgrade. But no, I think there's a Japanese one under the title The Cars That eight uh no the, the cars that eight people right it was retitled in japan um and there might be a german disc coming up soon but it is on uh google play and it's on the pay youtube as well although cool. i think it's also on just regular youtube nice as well but um but yeah it's absolutely fantastic it's a little bit lighter although it has some pretty horrible moments in it which in some ways kind of hit harder because there's so much more lightness to it uh, it's out in the out, it's set in the outback. It's got a very famous car in it that you would have noticed uh, turn up in Mad Max Fury Road if you care about such things. But it's uh, but yeah, it's about a town that essentially exists by uh, causing car crashes and scavenging the crashes. But then the movie is really about the sort of internal politics of a town that functions like that, and it's great. And it's got a great ending. So yeah, watch that. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, yeah, great, great recommendation. I think I'm going to lead with Escape from Cannibal Farm, uh, which is a Charlie Steed's picture, friend of the podcast and friend of me. And yeah, Escape from Cannibal Farm was the first Charlie Steed's film that I saw. And uh, yeah, I've got a real soft spot for it. It is so, and um, Charlie's told me this, like it's so heavily influenced by Hills of Eyes and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Charlie loves both of those films, except it's set on a British farm. Um, and, you know, Dan, there's some stuff about vegetarianism in there. And, yeah, it's really all good, fun. All good movies have vegetarianism, exactly. vegetarianism as a subplot. Troll 2 is Ex- rife exactly. with vegetarianism. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's just really fun. And it wears its heart on its sleeve as well as its influences. Um Charlie is not shy about um, making references and stuff. So if you love Hills of Eyes, uh, this is a modern equivalent. So Escape from Cannibal Farm. I think it's on DVD in the States. I don't know if it's on DVD here yet. I think 88 films are going to release it at some point, um, but not yet. So uh, I will let you know when you can buy it in this country. But if you're in America, you can uh, get it in Walmart or whatever. So, uh, yes, Dan, what is your next recommendation? Well, I'm kind of torn. Uh, I had a backup, but I don't think I'm going to need it. So I may end up doing two. Would you rather I rush through them both now or did one after your next one? 
you do whatever you want. I'm easy. Yeah, fine. <laughs> <laughs> and well, the one the one I was thinking I might drop because I worked on it. Uh, I now feel like I can include because you mentioned your friend's film. Um, but it's the first theatrical feature I designed from 2010, although we made it a couple of years before that, called F uh, by Johannes Roberts. And and while it's different in many ways from The Hills Have Eyes, um, it's about a father uh, stepping up to protect his daughter. And I saw some parallels in there, and then I doubted it, and that's why I came up with a backup. But I feel like I wrote it down, so I should mention it. It's called The Expelled in America, mm-hmm. I think. And it was, yeah, the first, of the first feature I did that got a cinematic release. My, my sort of main proper... Uh, suggestion is another 77 although I think it owes more to Deliverance than to uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre although you can feel both within it it's a Canadian picture from 1977 called Rituals oh yeah um, directed by Peter Carter uh, it's got Hal Holbrook in it who uh, people listening to the podcast will probably recognise as the long-suffering husband in the Fluffy episode of Creepshow but it's about a group of doctors which is an interesting twist uh, going on a hiking retreat very not you know very close to the um, the deliverance setup and they are they are modern doctors and they are in an area referred to as the big medicine or the big doctor by the Native Americans uh, because it's where all of the healing plants come from. And you're unsure as to whether or not they are being hunted by rightfully dis- like aggrieved indigenous peoples mm-hmm. or whether it is someone with an agenda or whether it's one of them who's picking them off. But the fact that they've all, you know, because they're doctors, they're all very like aware of mortality and uh, they're also quite good at looking after each other as well. <laughs> so... That, that makes some interesting stuff. It was massively missold when it was first released. Uh, you know, there was a lot of talk of mutants, which isn't really a thing in it. Um, and I think the old poster used to have, like, a big demon face on it. Again, totally unrelated. Mm. But, um, but it's yeah, it's a certainly an interesting interesting picture. And it looks, again, like much like um, The Hills Have Eyes, it looks like it was an absolute bastard film. <laughs> oh, really? There's a lot of dragging people on stretchers up mountains and through, like, thick, thick Canadian woodland. Well, yeah, yeah that, that that's a really great uh, uh, recommendation. And, and also, I'm very glad that you did mention F because, um, you know, we talked earlier on in the podcast about when we met and, you know, we bonded over movies. And uh, F was the first project of yours that uh, obviously I became aware of. And I had no idea that it was your first cinematic release. Um, but I remember sharing an image of uh, of the jaw gag that you do in that film. Oh, Roxana, yeah. yeah. And saying, Rob Bettine, eat your heart out. So uh, you've <laughs> always been good, Dan. Always been good. So um, uh, again, really, very sweet of you, Sam. really happy that Possessor is getting you lots of uh, acclaim. And you are building up quite a cool CV, like all the stuff that you've done recently, like Lords of Chaos and Colour Out of Space and, and now Possessor. Like they're all very, very Man. cool films. So um, Yeah, I've had such a fucking good run of yeah. it. I'm so lucky to have met and worked with so many fantastic directors well long may it continue but i am going to swap out a recommendation uh i was going to recommend just before dawn uh, but i have talked about it on the podcast before um if you'd like to know my thoughts about just before dawn and specifically the 88 uh, release of it then I have a new blu-ray column at Rebella um, import blu-rays but UK 
Blu-rays between you and I, uh, but it's an American site, so um, it, it's basically an import guide for them. Uh, and in the first edition, I do it kind of every two weeks, uh, and it has Cloak and Dagger, The Big Heat, uh, Edge of the Axe, which is an Arrow release, and Just Before Dawn. So I get into detail about all of those if you'd like to read my thoughts on those. So instead, I am going to do... And that wasn't a deliberate promotional thing. I just suddenly realised that um, I've talked quite a lot about that film recently. So I'm going to do Killing Ground instead. Did you see Killing Ground when it was at Fright Fest, Dan? I don't think I did. Um, So yeah, it's basically... A little bit like Eden Lake, um, and I know that's a very controversial film as well, and kind of in the same wheelhouse kind of as The Hills of Eyes. But yeah, Killing Ground is basically about a couple who go on a romantic trip in the outback. Um, They go to a remote beach and they meet uh, very, very hostile locals. Um, And I I think where it's kind of uh, a little bit of a crossover is... Um, a it, it has there's a child involved in the situation and that adds an insane amount of tension to the film it's just yeah it's unbelievably hard to watch and also you have the element of of survival and what people will do to survive so um it's kind of gone under the radar it's a forgotten uh, gem i think but yeah if you can track down killing ground from 2016 um i really recommend it it is an intense and good watch well good to watch um a thing i meant to mention by the way uh, about rituals is that it's got a nice looking new blu-ray from i think scorpion releasing great in the states um, I watched my shitty old VHS of it. So when you get the Blu-ray, if you get the Blu-ray, you might find out that there are mutants in it that I couldn't see because it was too dark. Yay! So just covering my ass on that. <laughs> right, well, shall we move on to recommendations from the past couple of weeks? Yeah, yeah, why not? What have you got, Dan? So you can watch this nowhere official. There are some ropey DVDs floating about that you can pick up at places like the Camden Film Fair or from a couple of those less salubrious uh, online shops that basically just sell DVDs. Uh, or you can watch it on YouTube because it's on YouTube. It's from 1975. It's called The Skin Under the Claws uh, by Alessandro Santini. Um, it's a very weird little film <laughs> in that it's kind of all films. You know that joke from Garth Marenghi? If you if you read one Garth Marenghi book this year, read this one, all of them. Yes. Yeah, it's that but with Italian subgenre films. Cool. It starts off uh, with quite a violent murder, like quite a gory murder, um, and then it sort of shapes into a rather slow giallo for the first, like, half. Mm-hmm. And it is, uh, it's often sort of sold as a giallo, I think, as a rare giallo. This was my first watch. Um, the cinematography is astonishing. Lots of very wide-angle lenses up in the corner of small offices because they just didn't have room. Mm-hmm. So everything has to be shot in this really wide glass, which gives uh, gives everything the look of an old, uh, like, 16 or 8-millimeter security camera. Right which is very peculiar. So it almost feels found footage in some places. Mm-hmm. Everything's very under, um, under-decorated. It feels very flat. Uh, yeah, so there's this, uh, there's this murder mystery going on. Loads of women have been, uh, been disappearing or, or, you know, or showing up dead. There's a very weird like, medical thing going on where 
They're like, this body has been dead for several months, but these eyes are the eyes of someone who's only been dead for a couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's a doctor who is trying to, he, he reckons he's found a way of keeping organs alive outside the body and he wants to set up like an organ library so that donations can be like stockpiled. So they can have people, you know, have organs on hand when people need um, transplants. And he... Um, and he then he dies like halfway through and then his body goes missing from the hospital and it's got a slightly predictable ending once you get that far through it but the the, the third act is just fucking crazy there's a there's a fair bit of like shit titillation thrown in to right. kind of keep the pace moving in some of the slower scenes so if you're expecting something that isn't quite sleazy it's um it's produced oh my, his name escapes me but it's produced by a guy who did a lot of Jeff Franco stuff oh cool um so that's the kind of tone there's a couple of faces you'll recognise from Italian cinema, and a lot you won't. But it's really, really bonkers, and it's yeah, it's a good, it's a good watch with a friend. It's really good. Fantastic. Ah, oh, uh, sad to have missed out on that uh, viewing party. It sounds like a fun one. My first recommendation from the past couple of weeks is a film that came out on Blu-ray last week. As you listen to this now, uh, from Second Run, so it's a lovely new release of Valerie and Her Week of Wonders, a film I oh, imagine you're a fan of, Dan. Yeah, I sh- uh, Jen and I watched it, uh, Jen, for the first time um, a few weeks ago. I've got the Criterion Blue. Oh, and, perfect. Um, but I assume it's the same print on the second yeah, run. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah it's gorgeous. Um, Jen bought me the novel that it's based on for Christmas. Wow, really? Oh, nice. And yeah. I imagine that'd be right up your street. How is it? Yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, I've not finished it, but it's amazing. Fantastic. It's, it's really it's really beautiful and lyrical. There's a lovely intro at the beginning, which is basically the writer going, ah, just thought I'd have a bit of fun. It's a bit silly, really. Don't take it too seriously. Enjoy. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, the, the film, I'm not sure if it, I'm sure it's the same print, but it, it, second run say that it's from a brand new HD transfer of the film uh, from original materials uh, from the, the Czech National Film Archive. Um, nice. I'm not sure if that's the same source that um, Criterion used, but either way, it is a beautiful Blu-ray of a really special film. You know, there is a bit of a crossover with A Little More Flesh. It was one of the influences, but uh, yeah, this this is a stunning release. Um it's got loads of cool extras. Um, there's a projection booth, audio commentary with uh, Mike White and Kat Ellinger. Oh, nice. And there's a few uh, short films on there as well, one of which is 21 minutes long, um, which is Footprints. Uh, and there's also Uncle and The Hall of Lost Footsteps. And yeah, I mean, but the major recommendation for this film is that if you haven't seen it and i'm sure there are a few people listening to this who haven't caught it yet it's basically comprised entirely of stunning shots um the composition oh, it's so beautiful the composition is insane it's so beautiful so it's it's basically if tarkovsky ever directed nosferatu that's the best way to describe it and it is utterly utterly gorgeous so valerie and mask. her week of wonders i very, very highly recommend it. And it's on Blu-ray yeah, from movie. Second Run now. So, yeah. And what's next for you, Dan? So, I almost recommended it last week, last time, uh, and then I didn't. Unless I did. My brain has gone to mush. But I really don't think I did. Um, but I've recently finished my third viewing of Cats. Yeah, you didn't recommend it because last time was Bleakfest. Do you remember the Harrow oh, video yes, podcast? Yes. So, of course, um, yes. But you know, who knows? Is Cats as harrowing as some of the things we recommended last time? In a lot of ways, more so. <laughs> um, 
So I'm not a huge fan of musicals. There's a handful that I like. You um, hate musicals. Yeah, by and large, yes. And, <laughs> and please don't think that I'm saying that anything about this film is good. But I have found a lot of pleasure in watching it with the right crowd. Uh, the first time I saw it, I saw it with the wrong crowd. Uh, but I knew that it was the wrong crowd, like, immediately. Um, I wanted to see it before they changed the vfx around you know there was that thing yeah they, they announced they were going to change the send out a new render basically of the film and um i uh so i dragged jen and uh and our friend will to the peckinplex to see it at the last screening of christmas eve <laughs> so we saw it at 3 30 in the afternoon and i you know judiciously had a bit of a skinful, and we got into the cinema, and it's like there's like ten people in the cinema, including the three of us, but all of the rest of them are kids with their parents. And just as the movie starts, Jen nudges me and goes, "Be nice, there are children here." <laughs> and I was like, "No, that's oh, that's not how I want to watch this. You can't let me. You can't not let me swear at it." So I sat through it, and it's interminable and awful, but it was also kind of magical because it is like. I think uh, the expression I used on the most recent watch is it's like being waterboarded with acid. Wow. Yeah, if you, the, the songs are grotesque and just poor, but um, but you can get past them. The if You do need, I would strongly suggest, your intoxicant of choice. Or if you don't, you know, imbibe such things, then maybe you could just like push yourself into the same mind, the right mind space for it. But I've noticed that people are already doing sort of ironic screenings of it. I think the Alamo Draft House are doing rowdy screenings. The Prince Charles have got some coming up. Prince Charles in London. We the third viewing I watched, uh, a friend had a screener copy. They were they're all being recalled. They're trying to sort of erase the, the early versions from from national memory, from from human record. It was also um, withdrawn from Oscar consideration as well. They're going to do a big push for it, and then well, yeah, we, it was an Oscar. The first version we were going to watch, so we planned this, and we kept on losing copies. An Oscar-winning friend of uh, of Jorg, the friend who um, organised the screening, mm. had said, oh, yeah, no, you can just use my Oscar copy. It's fine. And then when it came to crunch, he's like, nope, we had to send it back. Oh, wow. <laughs> they've, they've demanded it. There's a, there's a, a sort of a truism of... Uh, maybe truism is quite the right word. There's a, there's a piece of information about uh, screeners, which is that technically you don't own them. Yeah. The, they are only ever lent. You're not given them, so they can recall, they can demand them back. And you're supposed to destroy them as well after a certain period. You of are time. supposed yeah. to destroy them, yeah. And I, and I we will we will destroy the screener of cats that we managed to get in the end uh, by playing it until it wears out. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'm only going to see that film three times. We may if uh, if Prince Charles make it a regular thing, I will almost certainly end up uh, there in my twilight years, just gibbering. Well, yeah, good. I, I, I always feel a little bit weird when these kind of parlons happen. No, I'm not criticising your reaction. I'm glad that you've found so much joy from it, genuinely. Um, oh, it's a delight. And, you know, I've said before that I feel that I'm uh, every day I'm fighting a war for the future of independent cinema and I'm certainly not an ally of Tom Hooper and, and, and all the rest of it. But I do feel sorry for directors when they work on something like this and it's just has such an extreme reaction and you know that's got to be hard like how how would that feel i've got no idea so um yeah i do feel a little you know i feel a little bit for cats so that's why i haven't nah, actually watched it yet but i'm sure at some point i will watch it and laugh as much as everyone else does it's um, honestly it does sound it's insane. My, my top tip for cats 
is don't look at the focus point of the shot. Right. Don't look at the thing Tom Hooper wants you to look at. Look at the thing in the background that the VFX team thought they would probably get away with cutting corners on <laughs> because their schedule was so inhuman and unrealistic. Right. What they have done, what they have managed to do, the VFX people, is genuinely astonishing. The task they were given was Herculean. Yeah. There is no, you know, they, as, from, from what I hear, and a lot of this is, you know, I've, I've done a bit of a deep dive on this, but also a lot of this is hearsay. But um, it seems like the decision to go full VFX, it was always going to be VFX heavy, but the, mm. the decision to go full VFX to not have suits on them yeah. was made a couple of days into shoot. Oh so there was a mad God. scramble, a mad scramble to get people who could take on this extra workload. And God. it all went to one big company and they basically had to use all their juniors and their trainees. So it's all these like, fucking trainee kids working insane What's hours name? to get this madness done. What's the name of that? fucking documentary what's the name of it's about it's about special effects houses do you remember that documentary did we watch this together oh is this after life of pi came out and they and that company like got all the plaudits and then went bankrupt exactly yeah exactly yeah Um, i think that's exactly what was going on here like you know the the whip cracking must have been insane apparently uh hooper wanted to go back in and carry on working on it on christmas day to be able to get another version into american cinemas for boxing day because this was when they thought they still had a shot at the Oscar. Yeah. And if you... Uh, the 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 Oscar is judged on the version that's playing in American cinemas in January. Right. And so if they could make it better before the end of January and get it into cinemas in January, yeah. then that would be the version it was judged on. Could you imagine? There's your best picture. Well done. Um, <laughs> well done. It's phase shifting through your hands because yeah. nothing... nothing Meshes properly in this film. Just insane. Um, collars. Collars are another good thing to watch. They just fucking drift about up and down people's weird long cat necks. Well, yeah, I, you're definitely convincing me that I need to watch this this uh, cursed film. So um, it's such a treat. Yeah, I'll get back to you when I do. Uh, they did cut all the racist stuff out of the song that uh, Ray Winston sings, though. So oh. a little bit of prudence. Bloody hell. Anyway, kept the song in. Well. Um, I can't believe you're recommending this racist filth, but anyway, uh, <laughs> I shall move on to Winter Kills, which is my uh, final recommendation from the past couple of weeks. It's being released, uh, maybe it's out already as this podcast goes up. But yeah, it's it's out on Indicator, uh, another one from my beloved Indicator. Uh, and this <laughs> is kind of a, a lost cult classic conspiracy thriller starring Jeff Bridges um, as a guy who basically lost his brother to a JFK-style assassination, and he discovers they may have been more than one shooter. Um, I'm not going to go into spoilers. Um, I'm not even going to really go into the incredible cast, because even there I feel lies a spoiler. Um, But, uh, yeah, it is a, a really, really unique and interesting film. It's really weird. It's got a really odd tone. And I think that part of that comes from the bizarre making of the movie, including how it was funded. Uh, Again, I'm not going to go into that. I'll let you discover that for yourself through the Blu-ray because uh, there are excellent extras here and they go into real detail about the utter madness that surrounded the shoot. So, yeah, the story of the making of the film is as interesting as the film itself, um, which is one of the things that I really love about Blu-rays. And it's one of the things that's kind of great about The Hills of Eyes, like, 
the detail that you get on the extras on that disc does kind of um, improve the film for me slightly because I do, you know, I do love stories around making movies yeah. in an insane way. Uh, and so, yeah, Winter Kills definitely fits that bill as well. So, uh, yeah, Winter Kills out on Indicator now, I think. And I recommend it. Dan, should we go into extra features? Uh, yeah, do, um, yes, yes, extra features. Extra features, extra features. What were you going to say extra before features. we went into extra features? <laughs> well, it, well, well, I figured, oh, fuck it, I'll just make it an extra feature. I mean, it's not even an extra feature. It's me asking the audience to provide an extra feature. I, uh, I came across a film in my research uh, for this episode that I cannot find. Like as far, like I can't find anyone who's even seen it. Oh wow! But I want, but I want to see it. Right. And so I thought I'd just put the shout out on the off chance that someone's like, oh yeah, I've got an old rental tape of that from Holland or you know whatever. It's called the Lineage of Cain or La Stirpe de Caino uh, from nineteen seventy one. It's Lamberto Benvenuti, and it is a sort of. Oh God! How to describe it? I mean, the 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 couple of different synopses I have read for it are slightly contradictory, <laughs> so that doesn't help. But it it um it, I think it's a sort of ten little Indians on a yacht, mm-hmm. but it um but it sounds like a really interesting um if you search for it, there's a lot of posters for it being sold. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it it um it looks like a very interesting little thriller, and I'm uh, enthused because I can't see it. So <laughs> if yeah, anyone I know, I know has that. ever if anyone's seen it, could you message us? But also, if you have a... I mean, God, imagine if you had like an old VHS or something. That'd be amazing. But yeah, that, please. Lineage of Cain. Yeah, <laughs> I, I know it drives you crazy when you can't see films. Um, so yes, please help Dan. Uh, and you can no longer help Dan win his award, I believe. It's the end of January that the... the it is, yeah. When yeah. this goes out, it will be three days past the closing of vote. So will uh, you know by then, do you think? Or do you know when no, they're I suspect it? I, I, I suspect it'll be kind of like mid-end of, of Feb right. or whatever. I'm, I'm trying not to think about it too much. I was being enthusiastic about it. And, and again, because this will be happening just after the, the vote is finished, uh, some of you may have noticed a flurry of begging tweets from me uh in the last few days but um but in all honesty you know it it, it sounds very twee but it's very very nice to have just been nominated and i'm obviously hope i get it but if i don't uh i'm i'm up against a lot of very good people very good people yeah and you know you just never know with these kinds of things like yeah awards are a funny business so um yeah just part of the reason i've been enthusiastic about it is a i've you know uh, wanted to encourage people to vote, but also just wanted to celebrate the nomination in the first place because obviously yeah, it's man. an amazing Frank, achievement. Fangoria Award nominated. It's, That's like, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's a dream. And um, yeah, no extra features from me, uh, though uh, I may send Dan. Uh, the short film that I made, The Heart is for Blood, uh, so that he can watch it and, and maybe get his thoughts next time. I don't know. But. Uh, yeah, should we let's wrap this bloody thing up and I'll go to sleep <laughs> after that. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for listening and we promise 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 to be more professional next time. Yes. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. <laughs>